Second Corinthians three, 2 Corinthians three, starting at verse fifteen. Second Corinthians three, verse fifteen. And as we begin, let's have prayer as we always do. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together with your beloved uh, flock, with with our brothers and sisters, and and we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to the truth. May we dig deeply into your word and, and seek understanding and obedience. And Lord, we pray for the scattered ones that are listening around the world on the internet. We pray that you would bring the word to them and that they would know that they're in our hearts and prayers. And we pray for their spiritual well-being as well. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today we are in verse 15, and we were talking about this veil. So there's an extended discussion of, of, of being veiled. And as we saw in previous weeks, the veil, uh, the literal veil, was the one that Moses had uh, when he came down from the mountain because he was shining so much they couldn't bear to look on his face. The, the, Paul is using it as an illustration of being veiled from seeing the truth of the gospel because of hardness of heart. And so he says that people that see or reading Moses that aren't converted are veiled and they're not seeing the, the true new covenant glory that Paul himself is preaching. Now, in contrast to Moses, Paul's gospel is not veiled. Paul's message is bold, using this word parousia from the Greek. He uses great boldness or openness. And Paul is saying that the new covenant gospel that he's preaching is proclaimed forthrightly, clearly, and that if ultimately is veiled, it's because of Satan blinding people's minds. I'm, I'm thinking ahead of where we're going to be going here. So passage, this passage says, But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But it says in verse 16, but whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So we're going to talk about the hardness of heart that characterizes, I believe, the entire human race, and that this hardness causes all who have not been converted to not be able to see uh, the, the glory of God as revealed in the gospel. Now, in the case of the Old Covenant Jewish people, Mo- Moses is red, but there's this spiritual veil that keeps them from seeing it. Now, uh, the New Testament claims that the gospel is also found in, in the Old. And remember, Jesus said to... Uh, to the Jewish leaders, Moses wrote of me. And uh, when in Luke 16, when the rich man goes to Hades and Lazarus goes into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man says, well, because uh, there, there was a chasm, okay, he couldn't find, he couldn't, couldn't get from where he was to paradise, and there's this fixed chasm. And so he says, well, please let me at least go back and warn my brothers so that they don't end up in this place. And um, Jesus said to them, they have Moses and the prophets. 
And if they don't believe those, neither will they believe if a man comes back from the dead. All right? And so this was uh, pointing out that there's this, this, there's this hardness of heart that veils uh, people all from the true glory. Now, also, I'd say this is true. This is true of the Gentiles, only they just have less light to start with. Because it says in Romans 1 that uh, they are without excuse because they have seen God and should be able to know His attributes from what He's created in Romans chapter 1. But it says they did not retain God in their knowledge and their foolish hearts were darkened. So there's a veil literally over the entire human race. And it is not that the Old Covenant is veiled, but the people reading it are, and it's their hardness. Just as much as they couldn't bear to look at the glory or they couldn't touch the mountain in the Old Covenant, there was true glory there, and it was truly God speaking to Moses, and there was truth for them to know and to hear, but there was this hardness and sinfulness that was causing the separation. I, since you have the mic, Robert, could you look up Acts 13, 27 and 29? And then I want to quote from Mr. Garland. And he's quoting another guy by the name of Halfman. Halfman comments, Only those whose hearts have been changed by the Spirit will accept the new covenant redemption in Christ and be enabled by the Spirit to keep, keep its stipulations as revealed in the law. The seeming inglorious nature of the Messiah in whom Christians must trust compounds the problems for Israel. Christ was not a figure of glory who vanquished the pagan oppressors and restored Israel's fortune in the world, but one who suffered and died on a cross. His fate made a mockery of Jewish expectations and effectively nailed those expectations to the cross, or to a cross. He became, quote, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fail, Romans 3, 9.33 and Mark 12:10 through 11. Identification with this humble Messiah who endured the humiliation of death on the cross, however, abolishes one's former pride and fleshly boasts. But it also abolishes the veil that hides God's glory in Christ. Paul himself had suffered from the same blindness and now uh, darkness that now darkens Israel's vision. He looked at a Christ at Christ from a fleshly perspective. When God caused the divine light to shine in his heart, he saw the crucified Jesus in a different way as one who died for him because of his sin. And so, truly, um, this is uh, universally uh, applicable. And the only way that we're going to see the true glory of the gospel is for God to unveil our hearts. And because it's universally true that it just doesn't make sense to the hard-hearted. It just doesn't. I know for me, I, I, when, when Christians were witnessing to me, it was interesting really in, in my experience because having been turned off to the church because they told me that the Bible wasn't true anyhow, so I didn't see any reason to be religious and believe a non-true Bible. And uh, then I went off kind of in my agnostic state to study chemical engineering and was convinced by observing the creation that there had to be a creator God. I, I came to believe that evolution was a lie 
and that there was a God and that he did create the world just from observing creation. But I wasn't a Christian. But it's interesting, about, about the time I came to believe in God, these real Christians came into my life and started witnessing to me. All right? And that's what made me mad. <laughs> you know, then, then I got angry because they were saying it wasn't enough that I believed there was a God. I had to repent and I had to believe the gospel. <laughs> You're right. And that, and that God actually was going to be an authority in my life. And that he had the divine power. to, And that's what I wouldn't accept. Why, why, if there's a God in the universe and he created us, what does he care what I do? What can I possibly do that's going to hurt God? Literally, that's what I said. What can I do that's going to hurt God? And what does he care how I live my life? And the Christians kept witnessing to me. And I eventually converted. But then, as soon as you the veil's taken away, then you... That's, you know, uh, that song that says that I... Uh, there we go. Then I trembled at the law I spurned. I think that... Literally, this is how I understand it now. This has, to, uh, this has to do with that doctrine called Ordo Salutis, or Order of Salvation. But as I understand it, I believe that the trembling at the law I spurn happens after we're unveiled. That before, like Paul, um, Paul is breathing out threats of slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, right? And then the Lord appears to him and... (laughs) I'll let him keep doing that. The Lord appears to him and he says, Who art thou, Lord? And he says... I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And then Paul was interested in what God wanted him to do. And then when Paul wrote Romans 7, he talks about there how the law slayed him as a proud Pharisee. So it's kind of an instantaneous thing, but it's nevertheless true. The old covenant isn't veiled, but Israel is, and there's this hardness heart. Now, some people would say this, and I've had this discussion so often lately, I'm just going to go over it again. And they, they would say, well, if that's the case, if people are just veiled because of their own hard hearts and they can't see it, then why command them to repent? Because they can't do it anyhow. And the answer is God uses the command graciously to, uh, like in, in second uh, uh, chapter of Acts, it says when Peter was preaching, they were pierced to the heart. So in other words... God uses the message preached to graciously work to pierce the heart, uh, and then people will hear. Yes. And I think that when you're up against somebody with a hard heart, the concept that we have to break the veil ourselves, somehow we have to you know, remove the veil ourselves, uh, you start beating on it, however you're trying to remove the veil, that, that also is not, not very effective. The only one that will remove the veil Toward salvation is God, the more we preach the gospel and the clearer the gospel goes, and the clearer the gospel is presented yeah. to a person with a veil, the more they hate you. Uh, yeah. That's true. Absolutely. Um, yeah, the clearer our preaching is, the more of a negative re- reaction it gets. Right? And the more veiled our preaching is, the more people are pleased with it. And I'm talking about the unconverted. Absolutely. The truth has to be proclaimed no matter what. And it has to be proclaimed in its native purity without being 
tampered with, deleted, um, sugar-coated. <laughs> There's nothing that we should try to do. The, it, it, the, the meaning of the Scripture is what it is. And, and, and the more clearly the preacher brings out the true meaning of the Scripture, whatever it is, the more powerful of an impact it's going to have on everybody. The more powerful an impact Christians for their growth in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, and the more powerfully it'll set off reactions in the unconverted. Because it's, it's angers, it angers them. Okay, go ahead and read your passage. That's Acts 3, 27 and 29. That was Acts 3? No, hold on. What did I say? 13. 13. 13. I was right the first time. Acts 13, 23 through 27. From this man's seed, according to the promise God raised up for Israel, a Savior, Jesus, after John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. Wow. Not, okay, knowing, okay, knowing the prophets, but not really seeing their true, because of the veiledness, the heart is not really seeing the true message of the prophets. They fulfilled the prophets by condemning the one that the prophets looked to. Compatibilism right there. Is that true? Wow. That's amazing. So, so that was proclaimed to the Jewish people forthrightly in the book of Acts. Let's go to verse 16. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, um, the taken away in the Greek is present passive indicative. It's something that God does. The word man is not in the Greek. Um, uh, so the, the 1995 New American Standard Update has a person, turns to the Lord, but I think man can be understood to be any person in a generic sense. So um, whenever a man turns to the Lord, um, in other words, you can read Moses, read Moses, read Moses, read Moses, read Moses, and Moses wrote about Jesus according to Jesus himself. And it's veiled, 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 reading it, reading it, reading it. You don't see it, you don't see it, you don't see it. But whenever somebody turns to the Lord, the veil's removed. And then they open up even Moses. And when you can read Moses and see the glory of God and see his glorious plan of salvation. Brian, you're, you're one who turned to the Lord. I have one of the Bibles I have here is the Amplified Bible. And it says, but whenever a person turns and then parentheses in repentance to the Lord, okay. the veil is stripped off and taken away. Would you agree with that or not? Yes. Okay. As a matter of fact, uh, there, there are passages where turning is used synonymously with repenting. Let me give you an example. In first, 
it's either First or Second Thessalonians. Somebody can correct me. I, I, in Thessalonians, <laughs> now I know I'm right. In Thessalonians, it says uh, how you turned from vain idols to serve the living God. Remember that passage? Robert will find it. You turn from vain idols to serve the living God. Now, that is synonymous with the idea of repenting. So, there are words, there are passages that use the term repent. Um, there's another passage in Acts where Paul, uh, uh, I think it was Paul and Barnabas, or was it, yeah, Paul, they were preaching, and they were going to offer sacrifice to them. Okay? And then they rent their clothes. I mean, that means tore. The, <laughs> that didn't mean they went down to the tuxedo place for the prom, though. The, the reason I, I ask that is because then, if that holds true, then wouldn't this be a good supporting verse for, you know, there's some people that say repentance is not a part of salvation. But you would have to, in order to remove the veil, first comes, you must be repentant. Y- yes, it, that's... If you look at all the different ways it's described, now if you look particularly in Luke Acts, repent is key. In fact, in Luke, the Great Commission is to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins. All right? But we've got to remember that repentance is something granted by God's grace. It's not a meritorious work. And that's where the debate goes. Because some people believe that repentance is some sort of a meritorious work. And therefore, if you believe in that, you believe in salvation by works. But if you believe that repentance is something that happens because of a prior work of the Holy Spirit, graciously, then, then they say, well, why preach it? Why command somebody to do something that only the Holy Spirit can cause to happen? Because God told us to do that. <laughs> repentance for forgiveness of sins should be claimed to all the nations. And I believe God uses His means. When we obey God... God uses that graciously. And so when Peter preached repentance on the day of Pentecost, uh, he was just obeying Jesus, who told him to in Luke 24, 47. Now, did you find it? I did. It's uh, 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, verse 9. Uh, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, verse 10, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Wow. Now, I was going to say about the thing about Paul when they, when they rent their garments. He says, uh, don't do this. We're men of like nature as you are. And didn't we preach to you to turn from these vain things? All right. That, so preaching to turn from idols and preaching repentance are synonymous. Okay, yes. Oh, I was just that verse in Second Corinthians seven ten. It says, "Godly sorrow brings repentance, leading to salvation." So that Godly talks about sorrow. God yeah. bringing that repent, repentant heart and that sorrow. And then for um, isn't it like a lot of the proud grace to the humble? So if you preach the lot of them first, that like tills up the stony heart, and then that helps them to see their sins, so that. The Spirit can work to bring I, Yeah, I agree, Kathy. And I, I think that you can see that in, in uh, uh, Acts 2 with Peter. Because Peter basically, uh, the, of course, the Jews had the law. They already knew that. But what they didn't know was that they were breaking it. 
Like when Paul said, according to righteousness is in the law, blameless. He didn't know he was breaking the law until he was convicted by God of the breaking the 10th commandment of covetousness, according to Romans 7. So what Peter did was he proclaimed their guilt. They knew they had the law, but they, they didn't know they were guilty. And he said, this Jesus whom you killed, God raised from the dead. All right. Now what does it say happened when Peter preached that in Acts 2? Pierced to the heart. Okay, so that would that would confirm what you just said. Okay, I, I uh, one time got an email from somebody questioning that uh, they were questioning Todd Friel and Ray Comfort and that whole thing and saying no, it's just not true. They didn't preach the law in the Book of Acts, and so. Um, so I, I wrote an email back defending them, and I copied Todd on it. And I said, well, just I just went through Acts. Oh, they didn't preach the law, but they preached they sinned because they murdered. Okay, isn't murder, thou shalt not kill, one of the Ten Commandments? Okay, so I mean, it, it really does follow that they preached. Was it Paul that said that had it not been for the law, I wouldn't have known my sin and the laws of schoolmaster that brings us to Christ? That's in Galatians, exactly. Galatians says that. All right. Now, we're talking about this whenever a man turns to the Lord. Um, so if a, if a person doesn't turn to the Lord and, and only reads Moses, he or she stays veiled. Uh, the word turn there is uh, eris active subjunctive. Subjunctive means it may or may not be true. In other words, whenever would be if indeed, you know, if somebody does. Not everybody will, but if somebody does, then this is what happens. They become unveiled. Um, and this is a description, I believe, of conversion. When it's aorist active, the aorist is point in time in, in, in punctiliar action, as we say in Greek grammar. So that means that this is a point in time. This is, this is something that happens instantaneously. So I believe that Paul is describing conversion. Now you can use repentance, faith, conversion. These are all part of this thing that happens at a point in time. And if you want to look up in the systematic theology, the doctrine, uh, the various versions of Ordo Salutis, you can do that, which is Latin for order of salvation. But as MacArthur says, and I totally agree with him, however you try to uh, say, okay, first this, first this, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, it all actually happens in a one experience. Uh, repentance, faith, uh, forgiveness, <laughs> regeneration, all that is a one point in time thing that happens. It's not a process. Okay? Is that right? All right, now, so a person turns to the Lord, the veil's taken away. So um, there, there's still some commentary here of, according to the people that compare this with the Septuagint, to Exodus 34, 34. Let me, let me look that up. Exodus 34, 34. Because it's some of the same wording. But it says, but whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would take off the veil until he came out, and wherever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel what he had been commanded. And 
let's see, yeah, whenever he came out. Okay, so he, the veil came off. It's, it's, it, this is interesting, kind of Jewish commentary. Um, so as we read Exodus 34, 34, we wouldn't necessarily see what Paul sees there, it seems like. But Paul sees, he's kind of using an analogy here. So Mo, Moses was turning to the Lord. In other words, he was going in before God, and then he was taking the veil off, and then he saw God face to face, and that's why the glory reflected on his face. And so the way Paul is using that is we are like sons of Israel out there, and all we get to see is the veil because of our hardness of heart. We don't go in before God. We don't see the glory. We don't even touch the mountain because if we did, we'd die. So we stay in this veiled place, separated from God, for our own safety. You can't go in before God in your own sin. It would be like running into the holiest of holies. You just can't do that. But Moses, who had received the grace from God to do this, came in unveiled and he saw the Lord. All right? Now, Paul is doing sort of a uh, targum, uh, targum uh, or uh, commentary, Jewish type commentary on that, saying that's what's happening with us. And you can pick up that as, as you read on. Because notice here, as I read on, so think of Moses going in, taking the veil off, talking directly to God, seeing God, knowing God, hearing God. And verse 17 says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, now, now see, we all, New Covenant believers, that are being contrasted to the old covenant veiled people, we all, with unveiled face, so now we're like Moses, okay, he was unveiled, beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord to Spirit. So what he's saying is that the great privilege of being a new covenant believer is that just as Moses went in, and the mirror, again, thinking of uh, the analogy, there's reflected glory off of Moses' face because he went in unveiled because God graciously allowed him to, that when we are unveiled, we too can have this reflected glory of God shining into our, in, uh, in, into our lives and from us as in a mirror. So we get to be going on in. Keith? Yes. It says that we, with unveiled face, behold in a mirror. So is the mirror that they're beholding the face of Christ that reflects the glory of God? That's a good question. <laughs> because they're beholding it. They're, it says they're looking we, at the mirror. We look at the mirror with an unveiled face. So that the, my, my question is, Moses was the mediator of the Old Covenant, and we look to a mediator, Christ, because it says earlier that uh, because it is removed in Christ. Yeah, so now we're able to see when before we were veiled. So, so we're, but we're seeing in Christ we're as seeing, in the mirror. Yeah, we're seeing the glory of God in Christ where they see an offensive crucified and, Messiah. And in Christ is reflecting the glory of God so that we still have a mediator in Christ. We're not coming to God directly. That's a good point. It's, it's only through Christ. And so Moses was the mediator under the old covenant. Christ is the mediator under the new. Okay? And I think that the issue here is the veil was between the mediator and the people. Right. Where now we don't have a veil we, between the mediator we, and We can us. go right to the mediator. So we can go because the, the people couldn't come to the mediator the way it was before. That's a great, uh, great point. Uh, that's an astute reading. <laughs> that's our... 
That means you get an A when you have an astute reading. <laughs> I was going to quote Garland some more here. Here's a good commentary on this. He says, The change from a spatial idea of enter to the verb turn is suggestive. In the Old and New Testaments, the verb turn can refer to conversion. In Old and New Testament, and he, he says Deuteronomy 4, 30, uh, uh, 2 Chronicles 30, verse 9, Isaiah 6, 9, Hosea 6, 1, Acts 9, 35, Acts, Acts 11, 2, Acts 15, 19, Acts 26, 20. Those are cases where in the Old and New Testament, turn refers to conversion. Paul interprets the experience of Moses in turning unveiled and beholding the glory of the Lord as an archetype for the experience of the Christian who turns to the Lord. This interpretation also holds Paul's hope for Israel, Romans 11, 23, and 24. Paul interprets the action of Moses as paradigmatic for unbelieving members of the nation of Israel in his own day. If they turn to the Lord, they will have the veil of disobedience that shields their hearts and minds removed. This turning indicates that there's a sense in which Israel must act to remove the veil. So there's a command to act, and I, and I believe that, just as Paul, Peter preached that. But on the other hand, turning to the Lord applies to Gentile believers. 1 Thessalonians 1, nine, which we read, Galatians 4.9. Um, Keith, could you look up Galatians 4.9? In the New Covenant, every Christian can enter the presence of the Lord, but it is only by virtue of the Spirit who removes the heart of stone and writes God's law on our hearts that we enter safely. And as, you, as Keith pointed out, and of course through Christ. We can't enter other than through Christ. Okay, Galatians 4, 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Turn back. So there would be a reverse. So you... You came to know God. Repenting from being a Christian. <laughs> yeah. You came to know God, or rather came to be known by God. Isn't it, how, notice how Paul says that, to give God the glory? Yes. Going back to the veil thing. So what, so what Paul is saying here is the veil between, on Moses' face had nothing to do with Moses' relationship with God. The veil on Moses' face, he's attributing that Moses had to wear the veil because of the evil hard hearts of Israel. Yes. So that when we come to Christ and the veil's removed, we're still only seeing Christ. We're not seeing God himself or the God that Christ, uh, Christ is reflecting like Moses' face reflected God's glory in a limited way. Christ is reflecting the glory of God himself, and we can see him because... We've taken the veil off Christ, yeah. or God's taken the veil off Christ but, for us. But there's kind of a lesser to greater thing going on there, because Moses reflected God's glory, but Christ, because he's, he, in essence, one with the Father, has glory, because it says in John, we beheld his glory as the only begotten. But it still says as a mirror. As a mirror in Christ, is, he, is glory, he is glory, but he also was reflecting the glory that he had from the God the Father. Okay, that's true. No man has seen God at any time, so Christ incarnate reveals him, but he does have in his own being glory. Okay. In, in a sense, it wouldn't be true of Moses. Uh, so we were talking about conversion, turning to the Lord. What were some of those passages? Let's look up some of those. 
I'm interested in Acts. I wish I had time to preach Acts right away, but it's going to take a while to get through Luke. You know, I've been listening to MacArthur lately. He's been in Luke for 12 years. <laughs> Don't follow his example. Well, I think he must have gone through quicker when he was young, because I heard him. I heard the greatest message. Absolutely. Because you came to Sunday school, I'm going to let you in on this. Um, Norm, thank you for letting me know that. Norm sent me a PDF of a transcript of a message that John MacArthur preached at the Shepherds Conference. And it was about, it was basically rebuking amillennialists, who a lot of those pastors were, and promoting premillennialism. But in there, he, he just walks through the scriptures, all the New Testament, powerful, straightforward. And that's how I heard it. He's talking about preaching through the Bible. He said, I've preached through, the only thing i got left, I'm at the end of Luke and I have Mark and I've basically preached everything in Mark because most of what's in Mark is in Matthew and Luke. And he says, so I've been doing this over 40 years. I've preached through the entire New Testament and much of the Old Testament, wrote notes for my Bible, uh, uh, study Bible, and I've been doing this verse by verse by verse, and never once have I ever run into a verse that gave me a problem preaching my premillennial views. He says, the Bible's premillennial. And he said, you guys have the problem. You can't preach what it says. Because it comes and it says God will do this for Israel. And you have to say, no, I didn't mean that. It meant God was going to do this for the church. And he says, and you're making a canon within a canon. And you're, and you're destroying the meaning of the Old Testament. And you're telling us that the Jews who had the Old Testament, when they read it, it didn't mean what it says. How are they going to know that it means the church? Wow, did he preach. Anyhow... Here's what I think happened, though. He said he preached through the entire New Testament in 40 years, but he's been in Luke in 12. I think he slowed down when he got older. <laughs> Not that he preaches slower, but he's taking more time. Yes. Pastor Bob, I can't keep up with you. I'm new here. What, what was the term you used? Pre-something? Okay, okay, sorry. I didn't catch it. Pre, thanks for asking, Gretchen. The last, last week it was reprobation, right? <laughs> Okay, a millennial view, a millennium is a thousand years. And a premillennialist believes that Jesus Christ will come and restore Israel, uh, save Israel, and enter into a thousand year reign over a restored national Israel, along with the resurrected saints. Okay, that's premillennial. Yeah, over the, over the entire world. A millennial means there is no millennium. And, okay, here's how you get the sermon. Google, go to Google and type in John MacArthur Shepherds Conference 2007. All right? And then you want session one. Okay, session one. If you had high speed, now it's like 76 megabytes, you got to have high speed. Session one, and you get in there, find out where they have it, and you can download it. And it costs $2. So for $2, you'll get the best sermon you've ever heard. All right? Yeah. Uh, John MacArthur, the 2007 Shepherds Conference. And then asked for session one, and I don't know what that's titled. I, I, it's 80 minutes. I listen to it on my truck, and I'm going to listen to it again. Now, I may listen to it three times. And, and I am inspired. I am inspired. And, but you know what I got out of that message? Because I'm a premillennialist, so it wasn't me he was rebuking. But you know what I got out of it? 
his passion about preaching everything. Absolutely preach everything. Don't skip. Don't play games. Don't change the meaning. Preach it. And don't worry about pleasing people. Now, I brought this along. I probably won't have time in my sermon, so I'll share it with you now. This came from Kevin Bjork via email, and it was, again, MacArthur. Now, just listen to this. This is no extra charge. Yeah, so, so MacArthur's sermons cost two bucks. Yours aren't quite as good, but they're free. Yeah, mine are free. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, Keith. MacArthur's are great. They're $2. Mine aren't so good, but they're only free. So you can get mine on a budget. <laughs> Here's a prop, postulations and propositions about the Scripture from MacArthur. Uh, let me quick read these. Think, just think about this logically. First postulate. One, God is. Genesis 1.1. God is. Two, God is true. God is true. And then he gives about ten verses to prove that, but let's just believe it. Three, God speaks in harmony with his nature. So God is, God is true, God cannot lie. So God's words are in harmony with those facts. Therefore, God speaks only truth, postulate four. Now that's all totally logical, right? God speaks only true. Five, God spoke his true word as consistent with his true nature to be communicated to a people. God speaks his true word as consistent with his true nature to be communicated to a people. All right, are we still following logically? All right, therefore, now we have some propositions, therefore, based on that. One, God gave his true word to be communicated entirely as he gave it. That is the whole counsel of God to, is to be preached. Now, that's going to be one of my applications in my sermon. Because God was telling Moses, tell Pharaoh everything that I said to you. Now, why do we need to be told this? Be I, this is so uh, on my heart because I started writing my next book this week. I got, in fact, I wrote 4,000 words. Thanks to Keith and Dick, writing hurt on me. When are you going to write your book? When are you going to write your book? Okay, so I, I started writing, and I had to read this theology that I was able to read because of my broken leg. And here's what I noticed, and it's about the emerging church. This is precisely what they're not doing. They are retaining the, the, the right to choose what scriptures they're going to believe and which ones they're going to ignore. This whole uh, Jürgen Moltmann, uh, that's what I wrote about in, in my first chapter. If, they, if he doesn't want to talk about future judgment, they just ignore us if we weren't in the Bible and go talk about philosophers from 19th century Germany. All right. So <coughs> what we're saying is, that these are things that are absolutely essential to our understanding of God, that he speaks only true words. And there's no preacher in the entire world who has a right to say, I'm not going to preach some of this because I don't like some of it. I only like, part, I like other parts. We can't do that and be faithful to God. I can't just preach all the verses on love and never preach any on wrath because I don't like the wrath. And see, essentially, that's what theological liberalism is in its essence. When I grew up in a liberal, theologically liberal church as a young man, that's exactly what they did. It wasn't that they threw the Bible away. It wasn't that they never preached in the Bible. It was that they only preached the verses they felt like. And the ones that were uncomfortable or the ones they didn't like, we never heard them. It was just unheard of. 
All right? We can't do that. So I'm back to MacArthur. He says, God gave his true word to be communicated entirely as he gave it, the whole counsels to be preached. Correspondingly, every portion of the word needs to be considered in light of its whole. Two, God gave his true word to be communicated exactly as he gave it. It's to be dispensed precisely as it was delivered without the message being altered. Three, only the exegetical process which yields expository proclamation will accomplish this. In other words, as I'm going through, I'm going through Exodus now, okay? And I'm preaching it verse by verse by verse by verse. And it's not always easy to get a sermon out of the Old Testament. All right? It's, my life would be so much easier if I never left the epistles. Literally. I could save, I could save at least a day a week. I could save a whole day's work a week if I never left the epistles. Again, so much easier to get sermons because it's all digested already. It's right there. There it is. Just, there it is. Now you go in the Old Testament and it's hard work. Not only to just understand everything that's being said, but then to apply it in ways that would have an impact on people's life. It's a lot of work. So why do it? Because I believe this is true. God did not inspire the Scripture because we don't need it or that we should skip it. Now, today I'm going to preach on some sermons, some verses that are really hard. And so you may not want to go upstairs. You might get offended. But I promise you, it's in there. That's why I'm preaching it. All right. So that's my passion for today, and I, I wanted to share it. I hope you get a chance to get that, uh, that uh, MP3 from the Shepherds Conference. And if you do, I, it's just fabulous. I, I can't recommend it enough. Now, in, in a, frankly, we, we, if we have a theology that won't allow us to preach certain verses, then we got a bad theology. We should change. I had to change. I had to radically change my theology when I started expository preaching because there were too many verses I couldn't preach. All right. So turn to the Lord. The veil's taken away. Exodus 34, 34. Now let's go to verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Now he's bringing in the work of the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy Spirit, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Now, we're going to see why he's using the term liberty. The Holy Spirit is the cause of a person turning to the Lord. Absolutely undoubtable. Even uh, the only, only a Pelagian would deny that. Somebody like uh, Charles Finney would deny that. But there aren't too many theologians who would dare deny that you need a work of the Holy Spirit to turn to the Lord. But Finney denied it because he said any man has the ability to do anything God commands at all times. You can perfectly obey the law, according to Finney, as you are. So why that was accepted into American theology, I don't know. But it, uh, it takes the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So the Lord is the one to whom we turn, and the, this is a... Going back here, he's picking up the earlier discussion in verse, if you remember, back in verse 6, we were talking about the Holy Spirit. So in 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6, here's what it says. It says, uh, 3, we'll start with verse 5. Not that we are adequate in ourselves concerning anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who has made us 
adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, because the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. Okay? And then verse 8, how much more will the ministry of the Spirit fail to have glory? So Paul's claiming to be an adequate minister of the new covenant by the Holy Spirit, and that this is a ministry of the Spirit. So now he, he comes back to that theme later here. And now, so there's they're kind of like a long uh, aside about the veil. And now he's back to the topic of the Spirit uh, as under the New Covenant. So the Lord is the Spirit. So this New Covenant is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. And Paul is unveiled. His Gospel's unveiled. He speaks with openness, parousia, boldness, because he has a ministry of proclaiming the truth of the gospel in an unveiled way so that people would see what the terms are and turn to the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Lord is the Spirit. Paul's ministry is appropriate because of the condition of new covenant believers are in. Their their hearts have been taken from being hard-hearted and given the heart of flesh. They're no longer hearts of stone. The Lord has taken away the veil. The Lord has shined the light of his Holy Spirit in in, in our hearts and minds so we might see what's true. And therefore, because of this mighty work of the Holy Spirit, we have liberty. And that's a good translation. Freedom is another way to translate that. So new covenant means freedom because the law of God is written on our hearts. The God who commands... The God who commands also is the God who enables. So uh, the veil would be people's hardness of heart that kept us separated from God's glory. Liberty is freedom from the law of sin and death and access to God. And also liberty means boldness or openness. Boldness or openness. I had some verses here. Uh, Karen, could you look up Deuteronomy 4:30, and Dick Jeremiah 31:34, and Joanne Acts 26, Acts 26, 16 to 18. One of them I had actually was one Thessalonians 1:9 that you found. I should have just looked here. Okay, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 30. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God. And listen to his voice. Wow. When you are in distress and all these things have come upon you, that is the curses, you will turn to the Lord in the latter days. Is that what it said? Turn to the Lord in the latter days? That's what MacArthur was preaching on. I believe that Israel is going to turn to the Lord in latter days. Okay, uh, then we had Jeremiah 31, 34. They will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Okay, so how could it be that they all know the Lord? Because the only way to be part of the new covenant is to have been converted. Exactly. So all new covenant believers are converted, and that's why they all know the Lord. If you didn't know the Lord, you wouldn't be part or parcel of it. You're not in by genetics. Okay. 
And then Acts 26, 16 to 18. But get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose I have appeared to you, to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Wow. That's Paul's discussion of what the Lord commissioned him to do. Listen to that. I want to reiterate that. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Isn't that a very profound description of conversion? That that's what uh, God had called Paul to do. And so because of this high calling, Paul spoke with great boldness and great openness. Because nothing could be more profound, nothing could be more powerful, nothing could be more important than for this to happen. Yes. We've been um, studying the doctrines of grace, and one of the uh, theologians we've been um, learning more about, the St. Augustine, who is a... Uh, 5th century theologian, um, he had a prayer that, that got the attention of Pelagius. And he said, um, Lord, give what thou commandest and command what thou wilt. And what he was really saying in that prayer is that he's, a, he's saying, God, you've commanded us to, you know, you fill in the blank, like you commanded us to pray, grant us the ability to pray. Yeah. Or Lord, you've commanded us to evangelize, grant us the ability to evangelized. Exactly. And Pelagius came in and, and basically said that, you know, man chooses, can choose not to sin, um, basically denying that we've inherited yeah, a sin nature, nature and that yeah. we're all born with like a clean slate. Yes. And uh, so that's kind that's, of the beginning of the, the debate. That was the battle between Augustine and, and Pelagius and uh, and Pelagianism was, has been considered heretical by all versions of Christianity, including Roman Catholicism, for centuries. Now, there is a doctrine, and basically this is what Roman Catholicism is, semi-Pelagian. All right? And semi-Pelagian doctrine would say, yes, we do believe in original sin, but we believe that God already eradicated enough of it before any work of grace, or maybe they call it a prevenient work of grace. So semi-Pelagianism says uh, all human beings as they are now have the ability to respond before they've actually been converted. That's semi-Pelagianism, which was the doctrine of Rome. Now that was the big doctrine under dispute at the time of the Reformation. That was disputed above all else. And if you want to know why, go read the canons on justification in Trent. I wrote an article about this when I defended monergism, which is the Reformed position. Luther's position, Zwingli's position, Calvin's position was all the same, monergism. So if you read Trent, you can see what Rome was fighting against. Rome says that salvation is a cooperative effort between man and God. 
God does his part, man does his part. And that's called synergism. All right? And why was Luther fighting that? Because if, if, if man controls salvation, then they can dispense it. That's what they were trying to do. They were trying to sell it and dispense it this way or that way. But if salvation is of God, all they can do is proclaim the terms. They can't keep anybody out and they can't bring anybody in. They can only proclaim the terms. Keep. I was going to say the, the, the core issue in Pelagianism or Arminianism, it gets back to that synergism or monergism. Does yeah. God do the work entirely? Or do we do the work with God? Because if God's acting equally everywhere, then, then the only thing that matters is us. Yeah, and it true. changes the preaching, and it changes the message, and it changes Christianity. Absolutely. And it also changes how we interpret Scripture. So I am more than willing to defend monergism, and I'm taking plenty of email abuse because of that. Um, and I don't mind. They can, they can uh, I just, just, this, just this week, this lady was emailing me. Asked for where would be a good church to go to, and so I told her a couple that I thought would be suitable, including us. And she went on the website of one of them and found basically monergism. She said, "Why would you tell me to go to a church like that?" I said, "Well, that's because I, I teach that." Well, why would you teach that? So I sent her 40 Bible verses. Well, she didn't like my 40 Bible verses. She says, "Well, how could there be a great white throne judgment?" I said, "Because people are sinful." And they're rebelling against God. Well, how can God judge it, people unless everybody has the power to save themselves or to be saved? I said, well, so then we got in this email debate. And then finally she says, well, I believe that nobody will go on the lake of the fire except people who forthrightly heard the gospel and, and rejected it. Everybody that never heard is going to heaven. So I emailed back and I said, I know you're not going to like our church. Uh. Okay. I just no. If you believe that, if you really believe that everybody who never heard the gospel is already saved in their ignorance, if you sent missionaries into a country, you would be causing the damnation of thousands and thousands of people who would have otherwise been saved. The only merciful thing to do would be to never preach the gospel to anybody. And so. I'm no longer apologizing, I, maybe I never did, but for preaching what it says. Now, God is commanding all men everywhere to repent. And we're morally obligated to do it. Well, this is just where we ended last week. And if we do, it was because of God's grace. If we don't, it was because of our rebellion and refusal to do what God told us to do. Oh, I was just uh, thinking about the same thing you were thinking. You were saying about uh, going into another country, preaching it, and then people not um, either accepting it, even if they heard it, and then going to hell. Oh. Um, all good gifts are from God. Salvation and everything that's included in that, right? Yeah. Um, I'm going through um, the John 1.14, and it speaks of God's grace. Yeah. And... Um, it's an awesome thing because, you know, everybody has their own story, uh, self-included. And this is a gift. And everything that's included in your salvation is a gift from God. Absolutely. I agree, Carl. And thank you, Lord. And we have reason to give him all the honor, all the glory. All glory goes to God. And so that's what, how we understand this. And Pelagius was wrong. Phineas was wrong. 
but the Bible stands. Yes. 